Hello and welcome to another Dairy Dialogue podcast, this one being number 68, although maybe we should say 67 and a half, given that the last podcast was last Friday. But Wednesday is now the new home of the podcast, and so hopefully you find it and you're listening. Although I suppose if you're listening, then you must have found it. I'm Jim Cornall, editor of Dairy Reporter, and that last comment about you not listening reminds me of one time when I was on the radio in the days before smartphones, and there was a lightning strike that took us off the air. We had absolutely no idea when we were going to be back on, so the word was just keep broadcasting, and every so often ask people to ring in if they can hear you. So for about an hour I was broadcasting to, well, no one. Hopefully this show isn't like that, because it's a good one this week, if I do say so myself, although that has to do with the guests, not me. And I'll tell you who they are. I really dislike some industry buzzwords, and one of them is disrupt. I find it's banded about way too often, and most of the products that are going to disrupt a category really aren't going to. But when I heard about something that may disrupt the industry and that it's using cells to create cow and breast milk in the lab, I figured that disrupt probably was appropriate. A week or so ago, we had a news story about Turtle Tree Labs in Singapore, which is doing just that. And on the podcast today, we chat with the company's chief strategist, Max Rai, and CEO, Fangru Lin. We're also heading back to Sijep in Rimini for an interview with Gianluca Yatsetta, founder of gelato-making company Ascenza. And of course, we have our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Charlie Hyland from INTL FC Stone. Although it's a bit longer this week as we also talk about the effect of the coronavirus outbreak and the effect that it may have on the dairy industry. In the news today, I see that the coronavirus is about to get an official name because the virus concerned is just one of a whole range of coronaviruses. Its name at the moment is the wonderfully catchy N2019COV, which means new coronavirus from 2019. It's actually a tricky decision, apparently, because they can't name it after a place or somebody's name or anything that may receive a backlash. You already know that where I am it's raining, but on the bright side the nights are getting a little bit longer, which would be great if it wasn't bucketing it down all the time. And as if to add insult to injury, a report this week said Scotland should get used to long, hot summers. Whoever wrote that obviously hasn't been here. But all joking aside, some parts of the country did experience some unusually hot weather last year, and that definitely affects a whole range of things from transportation to food supplies, especially in a country that really isn't used to the warmer temperatures. I have to say it's definitely been a bit odd editing the podcast to air on a Wednesday, but I'm sure I'll get used to it eventually. Other than that, very little has happened since the last podcast, so I'll get to this week's news, or at least the news so far, because there have only been two days of it since the last podcast. But at least there has been some worthy of mentioning. We had our roundup of some of the new products in the dairy space for January, a look at Vita Foods 2020, which is coming up very soon in Geneva in May. The European Dairy Association and Dairy UK have some key demands for what they want from Brexit negotiations in a future trade deal, and Danone has been recognised for its environmental work. 
There's a look at what's happening with U.S. dairy in the Chinese market. Mula has created a new position in the U.K., that of strategy director, and a new report looks at how the European dairy industry can be more sustainable in the future. Those and a few more can be found on dairyreporter.com. And so to this week's guests. First, we'll head back to Sijep in Rimini, Italy. There were plenty of interesting things to see, including a walking ice cream mascot, which surprisingly no one tried to lick, or at least not that I saw while I was there. Imagine trying that and having to go home with a black eye and saying you got punched out by an ice cream cone. Anyway, one of the interviews I did there was with a relatively new gelato company, Essenza. And to tell us more about the company and its interesting products and ingredients is the company's founder, Gianluca Iazzetta. Okay, we are Essenza. Uh, we are located in Modena, that it's in the north of Italy. It's quite famous for uh, Ferrari, for sure, and uh, for our being our balsamic and generally for, uh, for our food. In fact, our area is denominated the Food Valley. And we started this project in 2016, and, uh, but uh, we can perfectly affirm that gelato is in our blood because uh, my family managed a gelato shop for uh, many 30 years, um, so we have quite a lot of uh, expertise in gelato and we surely love gelato. In fact, we decided in 2016 to launch this project called Essenza. Uh, that if we want to translate in English the Italian name, that means that it's without any number. So uh, this is our first claim. So the first intention it was to launch a complete uh, natural gelato line without any additive, uh, so without any number, but uh, the use just of uh, vegetable fibers and vegetable protein. Uh, because uh, the intention was to come back at a, a really natural gelato, more healthier, but with innovation. So this was uh, our first aim and our first goal. What's different about your gelato to all of the other gelato? The other company. Um, the first difference is surely that our ingredient list is uh, it's shorter because we use, uh, as um, I told before, just fibers and uh, vegetable protein. That means that we avoid all the thickeners, all the emulsifiers. We don't use any aroma, flavoring, we don't use any coloring. Uh, so it's uh, more clean. Uh, also the taste is, I think, different. The structure is completely different because we don't use any uh, vegetable fat like monoglycerate that are fat uh, that are uh, made from uh, coconut uh, oil or palm oil. Uh, and should the gelato it's different because it's lighter uh, at the same time uh, it's uh, more easy to digest uh, but the, the main difference the, the label is completely different it's more clear we work also with some startups that are trying to do something different in food uh, and that's permitted us also to launch a new line very close to the new tendency and new trend like sugar reduction and vegan gelato uh, in fact, we are launching also here in Sijep some uh, uh, flavors with uh, just 10% of sugar added. In fact, we have a vegan gelato that is a mango with uh, just 20% uh, of sugar added. That is a big difference from the standard one for fruit. And I think this is really interesting because we come back to a, a real taste and uh, it's more close to the original taste. 
and then we have also a showcase dedicated to sugar reduction for cream for dairy and here the sugar reduction is 30% less what, what are you using in, in place of the sugar uh, that's a it's a good point because uh, generally the big companies the players or who is trying to go close to this tendency use other sweeteners like erythritol, maltitol or stevia also in this case we decided to think this um, this opportunity out of the box in fact we are replacing the sugar with the fiber syrup that is composed by 77 percent of vegetable fibers and the rest is humidity in fact the consistency is like a glucose or honey and uh, it has a big research that we made with Parma University Campus and our partners and uh, that permits to uh, avoid the recrystallization of the ice cream and also to, to keep the gelato at uh, minus uh, uh, 14 and 15 that it's generally the temperature in the showcase so we are reducing sugar adding fiber so also the claim that we can declare in our label and that's the opportunity also for our customers and who is choice, choosing a Senza is to have um, a declaration and a claim like rich in fiber where it then contains a good source of fiber. So I think that's important to not compromise the taste and to not make a revolution to the gelato and to standard gelato. Yeah, also to make people to reduce the, the level of sugar that it's uh, uh, really high in, uh, in gelato because we are talking about generally 20-25% in gelato. It's quite a lot. We perfectly know that now the regulamentation, the organization are asking a, a substantially reduction of sugar. So we, we want to win this challenge. So for this reason, we are deeply focusing and push it this claim. And um, where do you sell your products? Just in Italy? Um, surely Italy, because we come from Italy. But uh, we can share the, our market. It's uh, generally 50% abroad and 50% in Italy. Uh, we are receiving very good content from Austria, Germany, we sell very well in uh, the north part of Europe, also US, uh, one of the most important markets is also Germany, that, uh, there are a lot of companies that are work uh, with organic and not, and also in France, uh, we are cooperating with some industrial gelato ice cream and manufacturer that want to, to skip monodiglyceride firstly, and for us it's a big opportunity because we are really working also in industrial ice cream that need a, a cleaner uh, label because they need to show the label in uh, their package. Show's going well so far? Yeah, very well. Today is the day because uh, Monday is generally the day with the more uh, professional uh, people that are coming to us. Uh, this is our third year, so it's going well. Next we go to Singapore. Well, not literally. Imagine the travel budget there. A week or so ago we ran an article about Turtle Tree Labs, a company that is getting plenty of funding for its work on creating breast milk and cow milk from cells. It's a fascinating topic that brings up a lot of questions, and you have to think that it's definitely a part of the future of food. But what are the implications for traditional dairy? Because no animals are harmed, is it suitable for vegans? or for some vegans? And what about the future product's carbon footprint? To answer these and more, I chatted with the company's chief strategist, Max Rye, and CEO, Fangru Lin. Sure, sure. I'd, I'd love to give you a little background. Um, so we, we started this project a little over a year ago. Uh, it's been almost a year and a half, actually. It started because, really, um, you know, Fangru, as a hobby, likes to make cheese, 
uh, and uh, in, in Asia, it's very difficult to find uh, raw milk. Most of dairy products are imported from New Zealand or from uh, Europe or other places. Animal hygiene and just the overall dairy industry is not really well established in Asia. As a result, it's very difficult to find a good dairy products here. So she just enjoyed making cheese and couldn't find access to good raw milk. Uh, and that's kind of where we, when we first met, uh, I'm, in the, I'm in the deep tech space myself. I was in AI, machine learning, and I've, always, I've been following Memphis Meats and a lot of cell-based technologies that are using stem cells to create food uh, and milk. So that's a little bit about how we started having these discussions. And uh, one of my close friends is a stem cell biologist, and uh, she's actually a breast cancer researcher. So all of us kind of came together and started working on this and found that we could actually use the same type of cells that are inside of the human breast or inside of a cow to be able to create milk. And, and that's how it got very exciting. We ended up putting a lot of our own cash into this to get started. We uh, grew our scientific team and started uh, finding ways uh, to accelerate. So fast forward uh, last year, mid-year, uh, we made some major breakthroughs. We were able to, to create uh, real milk, raw milk with the, the entire composition um, using this technology. Fast forward another few more months, we also were able to make human breast milk. So a lot of really, very, very interesting uh, and exciting uh, ways of creating this product. So that's where we are now. We're, we're continuing to accelerate, continue to innovate so we can bring the price down and, and build bioreactors that can actually do much larger scale. The press release that just came out was related to funding. How did that come about and what does that mean for your ability to move forward? Uh, we are very fortunate that the type of investors that we have behind us are quite uh, global and prolific. We, we haven't disclosed yet uh, the amount because we're still in the seed round now. That was a pre-seed round that we raised. Uh, but we have uh, people like the Prince of Saudi Arabia, uh, we have a billion-dollar family fund out of the UK. We have uh, Australia's sovereign fund. Uh, we have uh, K2 Global, which is uh, known for Uber and Spotify, the VP of Netflix. Uh, a lot of these, these are the type of investors that we have on board now. And we have another wave coming uh, of some really prolific investors to round out our seed round that's coming up. Obviously, sustainability is very important right now in the consumer's eye. Have you been able to determine what the carbon footprint is for the product that you're working on and also how that compares with traditional dairy? Yeah, it's quite drastic, really drastic. We're talking about between 95 to 98 percent uh, is the range that we're at uh, of being more sustainable, lower carbon footprint, uh, less resources than uh, the existing methods that are out there. And obviously, that has a major effect on the traditional dairy industry? It, it does. Now, our go-to market strategy is not really us going around the world building these plants. And in fact, what we are looking to do is working with the industry to be able to use this technology to change the way milk itself is sourced. And that's what we want to be able to do long term. We're going to start off with high-value fluids um, like human breast milk. Uh, we believe that we can transform the entire infant nutrition industry first, and then as we continue to bring the price down, 
then we will go after the that's a traditional dairy. In terms of just visualizing this, how big would your plant be in order to be able to do this in a commercial capacity? So when it comes to infant formula replacement, um, we can be much smaller scale, like 2,000 liter continuous flow bioreactors. You know, at that specific scale, we could do that. Uh, once we get to dairy, we're looking at five to 10,000 liter bioreactors, and uh, those are on a continuous flow uh, that they're continually pumping into the silos directly. Uh, that's something that's a little bit further out. I assume you could just set those up anywhere. Anywhere, and that, that's uh, the exciting part uh, because we can definitely hit dairy deficit areas. I mean, like Africa, here in Southeast Asia, and there's a lot of areas that you could target and you can actually provide high quality, you know, raw milk where currently it, it has to be shipped in. Right, and also you can put it in places that are a little bit more remote where getting milk to those places is difficult. Uh, that's right. I mean, like islands, right? Uh, there's a lot of different ways we could this, this technology could transform the way we access dairy. Scalability an issue? It just recently brought on somebody onto our team who is an expert in, in that space of building uh, everything from planning to execution of large dairy plants, like $300 million plants. Um, she's uh, she's well experienced. Now that being said, our our strategy is not to go around building plants, but we want to be able to enable the existing conglomerates and the existing dairy processing plants to use our technology, uh, so they can actually just change part of their source of their milk where they get their um, milk from currently, uh, and uh, be able to do that, have that same functionality of, of milk. So we're looking at scalability. We'll start off with human breast milk. Uh, so we can start off with, uh, you know, several hundred liters or more. Maybe if it's in, if they're in parallel, it's up to the dairy processing companies how much they would like. Uh, but we can help them build that side out. They can decide how much they need. But you know, dairy is a monster, right? so massive. We, we can't overnight change that industry. It's going to take a while. We, we do believe it's going to be, you know, a few years, five to seven years down the road before we can build the five, 10,000 liter bioreactors that can continuously churn milk out. Uh, but in the short term, we'll still be able to disrupt uh, the infant formula industry, though. When it comes to milk as a product, obviously on a farm, things are affected by seasonality and also by what the cows are fed. Similarly, with breast milk, there's variation. Uh, with you creating this through cells, how will that affect the regulation process for the product moving forward? Yeah, exactly. So, um, infant formula is actually a formulation of different components like bovine powder, like uh, vegetable extract, and it's all very, very strict. Every time um, uh, uh, infant formula uh, manufacturer wants to introduce a new ingredient, it goes through very stringent tests uh, because it's an ingredient and it's not naturally um, occurring in the food. Our milk, uh, on on the other hand, is uh, the exact biomatch of human breast milk. So what comes out of a of a human breast, um, so it would be deemed as a baby food instead of a baby formula, um, and uh, we would have to go through the same regulations as a, a regular food product would. 
so uh, there's a clearer path to um, to to going to market. Obviously, you wouldn't need to add any ingredients, but would the final product be powdered or a liquid? So as it comes out, it would come out as a liquid, and the um, the goal is really to have it come out just as if it was able to come out of a cow or as if it was come out of a human breast uh, entirely. So that end product, as it, as it is, will be uh, raw milk. That, and that's something that our partners uh, would be able to use the product and, uh, and, and pack it the way they'd like to, and uh, that, that'll be up to, the, up, up to the people we work with. Obviously, there are controversies surrounding the infant formula sector, including things such as advertising. Uh, presumably, this would remove some of those issues. Uh, this could transform that entire industry. Will you be able to modify the milk and add ingredients to it if necessary? Yeah, I mean, uh, we, we can modify it. The only thing is, is the minute that we start modifying the milk, then it, it becomes um, something different than the raw milk itself. So it, it's something that these, uh, these um, dairy companies or so forth will have to then work through regulation to be able to get that approved. Uh, or um, if it's an additive, it might be something, they, they're going to have much more insight into what that end product uh, can be. Our technology, we're able to do a lot of really cool stuff. We can actually make milk that's, that's lactose-free right from the beginning without any type of uh, processing, downstream processing. Um, we could do, you know, lower cholesterol. We could do all kinds of different things just by being able to enhance the cells to make sure they pump out whatever it is that we want. So I assume that that would mean that you could also do A2 milk, goat milk, sheep milk. We can do. We can do it all. <laughs> we can do that, and our patents cover all mammalian milk. So we're even we're even doing something with snow leopards to help with conservation. Yeah, it, it's really really exciting, uh, just because of the ability to do some transformative things and uh, a way to help the planet. Uh, we know all of these kids these days are pushing for sustainable ways of accessing the same thing they used to. So this would be one way of uh, being able to do that. Um, one thing that this allows, this technology allows us to do, is because the cleanliness is so high even the raw milk coming out will not have any pathogens. So, so that could be another interesting way to see what a future product will look like. So people can once again have access to raw milk uh, without uh, the risk of the pathogens that are in there. Of course, we're just talking here about the milk itself, but milk is an ingredient in so many different products. There, that's really where we see the biggest uh, opportunity. Because if you think about it, milk as a... Um, as a fluid, all of these almond milks and oat milk, a lot of these other folks, they're, you know, they're able to disrupt that market to a certain degree. But one thing we know is none of these almond milks are able to have that functionality of milk. You can't have high-quality cheese. You can't make really good butter and cream. You need, you need raw milk to be able to do that. Uh, I mean, that was actually how we first started our entire uh, goal. So... Uh, our mission. So once we, for us, that was very important and uh, something that none of the other plant-based products can actually do. Which also brings up the question as to whether this may be in fact acceptable to some people who have for various reasons switched to a plant-based diet. You know, if, if the reason why people are vegan sometimes varies. Sometimes it's their belief uh, on uh, what, how they feel about animals. Sometimes it's a health reason. Um, their outlook on life. There's various different reasons why people are vegans. Um, 
And uh, one thing that we've seen is people, if it's because of animals and if it's because of their belief uh, when it comes to animal suffering, well then this becomes a product they can start consuming. Um, and, however, there's still going to be some people, it doesn't even matter where that meat comes from or where that milk comes from, they're just not going to touch it. They don't want it. They don't want to have anything to do with it. So, um, yeah, it really, it really does depend on those types of folks. I think we're at the point now where consumers are willing to pay more for their products if it's sustainable, although there is a limit to that. How does the pricing of the products that you're creating fit into this? You're absolutely right. We're actually business people on the front end, and uh, we've, we've had a lot of time to think about this. Uh, one of the reasons why we started off with uh, with the uh, infant nutrition industry because it's going to be a little higher value product and we don't really have any competition uh, that's out there. I mean this entire, if we can, if we can create real human breast milk, there's just nobody else, uh, nobody else out there that can do that. So we, will, we can lead with that and have a higher value product. However, in the next few years, once we're able to bring the price down, uh, we believe we can get the price down low enough to where uh, it might be around or, uh, what the market rates are now or a few dollars more, but we can actually do that. This must be a very exciting space to be working in on a daily basis. Did you say products should be commercially available in f about five years? Well, we can actually start commercializing this as of next year with a high-value product. Uh, but uh, five years before we can hit uh, just all dairy market in general with all the uh, byproducts as well, milk, dairy milk. Uh, but right now, the, the, the price is, um, is going to be hitting the instant nutrition area. Will you be working with other companies on their brands, or will you also be branding your own products? We're definitely working with other companies, uh, and uh, they and we will be working through them. We def we are mostly a B two B play. Uh, we want to be able to ex help the existing industry to make that transition. So we'll be focused on licensing model, design model, royalty model. So this way we can have that maximum impact and that scalable impact. So because we, we want to be able to change the world. But uh, one of the things that I was going to tell you earlier uh, about uh, about uh, staying up and being so excited about this is because uh, there's a lot of interesting discussions, uh, not just about milk access here, but uh, a lot of the folks at NASA and, uh, and SpaceX, they have these ambitions to go to space. So um, this, this is a great way for us to be able to take this type of technology or have access to raw milk in space someday. That's another interesting angle. Um, in terms of the size of the equipment that would be used, is that something that you would be able to do to create these on a small scale to be able to be transportable into space? As a matter of fact, we will be able to create the small ones first uh, before we create the larger ones. And so uh, definitely a possibility because uh, we are building all the small-scale bioreactors first that, uh, that do like five liters uh, continuous flow. Uh, so these are the type of bioreactors we're using now. Um, and uh, we're scaling this up because of the need, right? We need to be able to build, make large volumes of it. Uh, but uh, definitely, it's a, a, a not only is it a possibility, but I think it's definitely achievable uh, for small size ones that can go into space. And that kind of also ties into what you were talking about earlier with some of the remote communities. How would these things be powered? Would you be able to use solar power? Yes, it can be powered solar. I mean, uh, as long as you have electricity supply, 
and access to clean water. Clean, uh, clean water is something that we do need, uh, but uh, everything else uh, is, uh, is possible. It's a very exciting area of development, and it would certainly seem to be the future, not necessarily just in this industry, but also in other industries. I think that uh, you're right. There are cell-based meats. There are cell-based all types of different products that are coming onto the market. You know, there's like a, a few more billion people coming in the next uh, 10, 20 years, so we have to be able to uh, find other ways to feed them without, uh, without basically... Um, using any more of our natural resources. Uh, so th this is definitely at least an option for people to start thinking about. Another huge story at the moment is the spread of coronavirus. It's already having a major impact on travel. There are quarantines in place, travel bans, and there were even reports of a hospital in China being constructed in 10 days to respond to the outbreak. Our hearts definitely go out to all those that are affected by the virus, but obviously there are also some serious economic implications created by the spread of the coronavirus as well. To tell us how the situation is affecting the dairy industry and how it could affect it moving forward depending on the different possible scenarios is someone regular listeners to the show should be very familiar with, and that is Dublin-based Charlie Highland, who is head of EU Dairy at INTL FC Stone, who along with Liam Fenton provides us with our weekly look at the global dairy markets. Okay, hi Jim. Very volatile week we've had in the dairy markets uh, this week, mostly being spurred on by uh, concerns um, around the impacts of the coronavirus on the dairy markets. There's certainly been a fear that um, there will be a weakening demand as a result of that. And in general, um, that will, when, when, when China reduces what they're buying on the global markets, that of course impacts everybody um, because of their, uh, their scale. So we've seen um, a lot of people were focusing on the, the global dairy trade auction this week to really get a good gauge as to uh, what kind of impact we'd have um, from market pricing perspective and really to see if they're with their, how the global demand was outside, almost outside of China, but also see what, what China would be doing in terms of their buying of the GDT. General expectation going into the auction was that um, China, who's normally a very large participant, usually around 50% or more of the buying is, is into China. Most people expected that to be significantly lower in this GDT auction, and, and the result of that, that the expectation was prices should come down quite considerably as a result. The futures, for example, on NZX, which are um, linked to the GDT, were forecasting, uh, depending on the product, but somewhere between a um, you know 8% to, to even higher um, drop-off in, in GDT, with the whole milk down about 6% and, and some of the other products down, down even more. The result of the GDT auction was actually that it was down 4.7%, which was a little bit, uh, I would better than general market expectation. The whole milk was, was quite in line with where it forecast, a little bit better than where the NZX was, um, was, was pointing to. It was down 6.2%. But the, the surprise was really that there was good demand and uh, strong pricing for skim milk powder, which um, was still down compared to the previous auction, but not down as much as expected. So it was down 4.2% on average, um, roughly at a price of about $2,900 per ton. Just before the auction, prices in Europe and the US were trading quite a good bit lower than that. But with this surprise demand, uh, things did, uh, did improve. 
The most uh, surprising thing I think about the GDC auction though was the fact that China was continuing to, to buy strongly on it. There was um, about 29,000 tonnes offered on the platform. China bought about 14,000 of, of tonnes of, of that. So though they were still the main dominant buyer, um, surprising uh, most people's expectations. As we move forward, is there any way of predicting what could happen or are we just having to go by this on a week by week basis? The challenges from a dairy perspective that the coronavirus is going to um, result in within China is um, obviously the, the demand from the fact that people aren't going out, eating in restaurants, um, etc. Et there will certainly be a demand decrease as a result of that. But also uh, the fact that factories are closed, so there'll be less processing, uh, logistical infrastructure is down, so there'll be less or difficulties in moving products. So the result is there will be um, a short-term reduction in, in consumption directly as a result of this. And, and, and the big question mark now is how long are some of these restrictions going to remain in place? And then ultimately, how big is the spread of this virus? So if things settle down and, and they get it under control pretty quickly, we think the impact will be, will be reasonably low. I mean, certainly there'll still be an impact looking at what's happened already. But if, if things do uh, get under control quite quickly, that will be limited. Um, more likely, when you look at the impact, it's, it's really going to be a knock-on effect as to what impact this is going to have in general GDP growth and development within China and, and internationally. And, uh, you know, best forecasts at the moment are, are coming in with expecting, um, you know, the impact of, of GDP to potentially up to 2% down in, in terms of China if, if this continues to be um, quite large. And, and if that's the case, that will, of course, have a, a pretty major impact on, on dairy prices. Already, if you look at the impact, it's probably not 5% or more of uh, futures markets equivalent prices uh, globally. And, and I think that's where um, that impact could continue if this continues to be a problem for, for several more uh, weeks and months. We guess we're sort of restricting this to China, but if it starts to spread the virus and it starts to affect more countries, we're already seeing like travel is being disrupted. And absolutely, could it sort of get worse if if it goes to spreads? Of course it could, absolutely. And I think if, if you look at it, dairy is very dairy demand is very reactive to GDP growth. Uh, if we look at from a, a way of predicting dairy demand, that's that's one of the best benchmarks we can look at. And the the, the more this virus spreads internationally, the more of an impact on on, on GDP growth it's gonna have in various countries. Um which are all buyers and consumers of dairy products. So, so absolutely, the more this spreads, uh, if similar controls are taking place in other countries, that will again have a, an impact directly on, on economic growth, which will then have a direct impact on, on dairy demand. So um, the, the challenge at this stage with, with this virus is trying to estimate how big of an impact that's going to be. So I guess we just have to keep watching and change the outlook as we go. Yeah, very much so. And um, I mean, we, we can only really look at previous uh, uh, kind of disease outbreaks and we look at, at, at some of them and the potential impacts they, they have had. And there, there has been quite a, a number of studies and, and you can see quite a clear impact um, when you look at some of the previous uh, outbreaks. So you can see a clear impact on, on that GDP uh, economic growth number. And as a result, you, see, you can see a direct impact on, on demand for, for various agricultural commodities um, and, and foodstuffs and, and dairy being, being one of those. So.
yes, we have to see how long this continues to develop, how bad it gets. Um, or again, if it gets under control reasonably quickly. And, uh, and uh, certainly the market um, was very nervous. And I think, again, this GDT, the auction that we had this week was, was a really interesting one to see if, if that fear was, was going to have a major impact on, on shutting that demand off um, straight away. And, and so far, it hasn't been as bad as people were, were fearing. So, so that's positive in terms of, you know, people still need to eat, of course, and the demand will continue to be there. I guess the question is, what kind of impact overall will we see if this continues to, to get worse? And in that best case scenario, does it rebound quickly? Yeah, I think even with what you've seen happen already, we were going to have an impact. I mean, the, the, the couple of weeks shutdown in, in China will have a direct impact on the volume of, uh, of dairy products they will be consuming over that period, which will reduce imports. However, if you look at the overall balance tables in, in terms of supply, demand and availability of stocks, it's still reasonably tight. Um, so if it does kind of clear up pretty quickly, you will see a recovery. You'll still have an impact. So overall, this has resulted in a slight discount, which will continue uh, to be there in, in terms of the pricing. But but certainly, we shouldn't see prices um, be further impacted. And as a result, if, if the supply-demand balance remains tight, we should return to stability and, and probable growth. Thanks for the updates and the info on coronavirus, Charlie. Greatly appreciated and definitely something to be aware of as we see how this develops. And we'll catch up with you again next week for the weekly update. INTL FC Stone provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that's it for this week's show. And if you enjoyed it half as much as I did, then I enjoyed it twice as much as you. But I hope you enjoyed it a bit more than that. And I hope moving to Wednesdays hasn't thrown things off too much. As for next week's show, well, Beth Newhart has a couple of interviews from the IDFA event in Arizona, and I have another really interesting and thought-provoking interview about another potentially disruptive ingredient in the industry when I chatted with Andrew Spicer, CEO of UK-based company Algenuity. I think I've said disruptive a few times on the show today in spite of not being overly fond of its use in the food industry, but when it applies, why not? And we've got plenty more interviews in the pipeline for the rest of the month as well. Which is just as well, because for the last week in February, I'm in Paris at the Salon de Fromage. So I'll have to produce two podcasts the week before, which might make rounding up the week's news a bit of a challenge. Especially as I'm not very good at predicting anything. But one thing I can predict is rain for the weekend here, but that's not really going out on a limb. So I hope you enjoy the rest of the week and the weekend, wherever you may be. And, as always... Thanks for listening.